peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Chapter 8. All the Young Turks, Hollywood Tripping. As all halfway decent managers in the rock era have done, Jim Dixon worked on seducing the in-crowd and creating a buzz around the birds. The timing was perfect. L.A.'s baby boomers were mobile, getting around, looking for action. And now they were joined by the hip elite of Hollywood itself, from Sal Mineo and Peter Fonda, the junkie comic Lenny Bruce. Barney Hoskins, writing in Waiting for the Sun. As important as the freaks were to building an audience for the new Laurel Canyon bands, there was another group that played a key role as well, Hollywood's so-called Young Turks. Like the freaks, the Turks became an immediate and constant presence on the newly emerging Sunset Strip scene. And as with the freaks, their presence on the Strip was heavily promoted by the media. Locals and tourists alike knew where to go to gawk at the freaks, and as an added bonus, quite possibly rub shoulders with the likes of Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern, Dennis Hopper, and Warren Beatty, along with their female counterparts, such as Jane Fonda, Nancy Sinatra, and Sharon Tate. And as with the freaks, the Turks were also instrumental in distracting attention away from the less-than-stellar musicianship on the stage. After all, young men offered the chance to see Jane Mansfield in the flesh probably didn't even notice whether there was a band on the stage at all. Mansfield, by the way, like Mansonite's Susan Atkins and Bobby Beausoleil, had direct ties to Anton LaVey and his Church of Satan. Many of these young and glamorous Hollywood stars forged very close bonds with the Laurel Canyon musicians. Some of them, including Peter Fonda, found homes in the canyon so that they could live, work, and party among the rock stars, and in their free time, pass around John Phillips' wife Michelle to just about every swinging dick in the canyon, including Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Warren Beatty, Roman Polanski, and Gene Clark of the Birds. Some of them never left. Jack Nicholson, to this day, lives in a spacious estate just off the portion of Mulholland Drive that lies between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater Canyon not far west of Nicholson's property, which now includes the neighboring estate formerly owned by Marlon Brando, sits the longtime home of Warren Beatty. From the symbiotic relationship between Laurel Canyon actors and Laurel Canyon musicians arose a series of feature films that are now considered countercultural classics. 
One such film was The Trip, 1967, an unintentionally hilarious attempt to create a cinematic facsimile of an LSD trip. Written by, of all people, Jack Nicholson, the movie starred fellow Turks Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Bruce Dern. Seated in the director's chair was Roger Corman, who, throughout his career, worked side-by-side side with David Crosby's dad on no less than 23 feature films. Recruited to supply the soundtrack for the film was Graham Parsons' International Submarine Band. Parsons' music, however, was ultimately not used, though the band does make a brief on-screen appearance. The house where most of the film was shot, at the top of Kirkwood Drive in Laurel Canyon, became the home of Love's Arthur Lee. Another psychedelic cult film of the late 1960s with deep roots in Laurel Canyon was the Monkees' 1968 big-screen offering, Head, also scripted by Nicholson, with assistance from Bob Raffleson. The movie included cameo appearances by canyon dwellers Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, and Frank Zappa. The music, performed of course by the Monkees, was a mix of songs written by the band and contributions from canyon songwriters like Carole King and Harry Nilsson. Shockingly, some of that music is actually pretty good. Even more shockingly, the movie overall is arguably the most watchable of the 1960s cult films. It is certainly a vast improvement over, for example, 1968's wretched Psych Out, starring Nicholson and Dern. I do realize, by the way, that some of you out there in reader land cringe every time that I mention the monkeys as though they were a real band. The reality, though, is that they were every bit as real as most of their contemporaries. And while the made-for-TV Beatles replicants were looked down upon by music critics and fans alike, they were fully accepted as members of the musical fraternity by the other Laurel Canyon bands. The homes of both Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork were popular Canyon hangouts in the late 60s for a number of real musicians. Also regularly dropping by Dolan's party house were Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson. The difference in perception between their peers and the public was attributable to the fact that the other bands knew something that the fans did not. The very same studio musicians who appeared without credit on the Monkees' albums also appeared without credit on their albums. And then, of course, there was the fact that so many of Laurel Canyon's real musicians had taken a stab at being a part of the Monkees, including Stephen Stills, Love's Brian McLean, and Three Dog Nights' Danny Hutton, all of whom answered the Monkees' casting call and were rejected. There were undoubtedly other future stars who auditioned for the show as well, though most would probably prefer not to discuss such things. Despite persistent rumors, however, there was one local musician who we can safely conclude did not read for a part. Charles Manson. Given that the show was cast in 1965 and began its brief television run in 1966, while Charlie was still imprisoned at Terminal Island awaiting his release in March of 1967, there doesn't seem to be any way that Manson could have been considered for a part on the show. And that's kind of a shame when you think about it, because if he had been, 
We might today remember Charlie Manson, not as one of America's most notorious criminals, but rather as the guy who made Marsha Brady swoon. Returning to the countercultural films of the 1960s, the most critically acclaimed of the lot, and the one with the deepest roots in Laurel Canyon, was Easy Rider. Directed by Dennis Hopper, from a script co-written by he and Peter Fonda, the film starred Fonda and Hopper, along with Jack Nicholson. Hopper's walrus-mustachioed character in the film was based on David Crosby, who was regularly seen racing his motorcycle up and down the winding streets of Laurel Canyon. That motorcycle, by the way, had been a gift from Crosby's good buddy, Peter Fonda. Fonda's absurd Captain America character was inspired either by John Phillips' writing partner, Graham Parsons, or by Crosby's former bandmate in The Birds, Roger McGinn, depending on who is telling the story. That very same Roger McGinn scored the original music for the film. His contributions were joined on the soundtrack by offerings from fellow Canyonite musicians Steppenwolf, The Birds, Fraternity of Man, and Jimi Hendrix. And the movie's hippie commune was reportedly created and filmed in the canyons near Mulholland Drive. Since Easy Rider had such deep roots in the Laurel Canyon scene, we need to briefly focus our attention here on one other individual who worked on the film. Art director Jeremy Kay, a.k.a. Jerry Kay. Before Easy Rider, Kay had worked on such cinematic abominations as Angels from Hell, Hell's Angels on Wheels, with Jack Nicholson, and Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger's occult-tinged homage to gay biker culture. In the mid-1970s, Kay would write, direct, and produce a charming little film entitled Satan's Children. Of far more interest here than his film credits, though, is his membership in the 1960s in a group known as the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, which found itself in the news, and not in a good way, just after Easy Rider opened on theater screens across America. Two weeks after Easy Rider premiered, on July 14, 1969, police acting on a phone tip raided the Solar Lodge's compound near Blythe, California, and found a six-year-old boy locked outdoors in a six-foot-by-six-foot six wooden crate in the sweltering desert heat. The young boy, whose father was a Los Angeles County probation officer, had been chained to a steel plate for nearly two months, in temperatures reaching as high as 117 degrees Fahrenheit. According to an FBI report, the box also contained a can partially filled with human waste and swarming with flies. The stench was nauseating. Before being put in the box, the child had been burned with matches and beaten with bamboo poles by cult members. The leader of the cult, Georgina Brayton, had reportedly told cult members that when it was convenient, she was going to give the boy LSD and set fire to the structure in which he was chained and give him just enough chain to get out of reach of the fire. Killing the child had also been discussed and apparently condoned by the boy's mind-fucked mother. 
11 adult members of the sect were charged with felony child abuse, the majority of them young white men in their early 20s. All were brought to trial and convicted. In a curious bit of timing, the raid that resulted in the arrests and convictions coincided with the torture and murder of musician Gary Hinman by a trio of Manson acolytes. Though it is, not surprisingly, vehemently denied by concerned parties, various sources have claimed that Manson had ties to the group, which also maintained a home near the USC campus in Los Angeles. There is no doubt that Charlie preached the same dogma, including the notion of an apocalyptic race war looming on the horizon. The massacre at the Tate residence occurred less than two weeks after the raid on the OTO compound. Manson's Barker Ranch hideout would be raided a few months later on October 12, 1969, the birthday, as I may have already mentioned, of Alistair Crowley, the Grand Poobah of the OTO until his death in 1947. Anyway, sorry about that little digression, folks. I'm not entirely sure how we ended up at the Barker Ranch when the focus of this chapter was supposed to be on the Young Turks. So having now established that those Turks were a fully integrated part of the Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip scene, and also that they played an important role in luring the public out to the new clubs to check out the new bands. Our next task is to get to know a little bit about who these folks were and where they came from. Let's begin with Mr. Bruce Dern, who has some of the most provocative connections of any of the characters in this story. It is probably safe to say that Dern's parents had rather impressive political connections, given that baby Bruce's godparents were sitting First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and future two-time Democratic presidential nominee Adlai Stevenson. He lost both times in 1952 and 1956 to Eisenhower. Bruce's paternal grandfather was a guy by the name of George Dern, who served as Secretary of War under President Franklin Roosevelt. For the youngsters in the crowd, Secretary of War is what we used to call the Secretary of Defense in a slightly less Orwellian era. George had also served as governor of Utah and chairman of the National Governors Association. Bruce's mother was born Jean McLeish, and she happened to be the sister of Archibald McLeish, who also served under Franklin Roosevelt as the director of the War Department's Office of Facts and Figures and as the assistant director of the Office of War Information. In other words, Archibald McLeish was essentially America's Minister of War Propaganda. He also served at various times as an Assistant Secretary of State and as the Librarian of Congress. Perhaps the most impressive item on his resume, however, was his membership in everyone's favorite secret society, Skull and Bones, Class of 1915 one year before Prescott Bush was tapped in 1916. It would appear then that even by Laurel Canyon standards, Mr. Dern has friends in very high places. Let's turn our attention next to the guy who shared the screen with Dern in the trip, Mr. Peter Fonda. Of 
course, we all know that Fonda is the son of good old Hank Fonda, lovable Hollywood liberal and all-around nice guy. And certainly, even a contrarian such as myself would not be so bold as to suggest that Henry Fonda might have some skeletons in his closet, right? Just for the hell of it, though, there are a few chapters of the Hank Fonda saga that we should probably review here. We can begin, I suppose, by noting that Hank served as a decorated U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer during World War II, thus sparing Peter the stigma of being the only member of the Laurel Canyon Inn crowd to have not been spawned by a member of the military intelligence community. Not too many years after the war, Hank's wife, Frances Ford Seymour, who claimed to be a direct descendant of Jane Seymour, third wife of King Henry VIII, was found with her throat slashed open with a straight razor. Peter was just ten years old at the time of his mother's alleged suicide on April 14, 1950. When Seymour had met and married Hank, she was the widow of George Brokaw, who had, curiously enough, previously been married to prominent CIA operative Claire Booth Luce. Fonda rebounded quickly from Seymour's unusual death, and within eight months he was married once again to Susan Blanchard, to whom he remained married until 1956. In 1957, Hank married yet again, this time to Italian Countess Afdera Franchetti, who followed up her four-year marriage to Fonda with a rumored affair with newly sworn-in President John Kennedy. Franchetti, as it turns out, is the daughter of Baron Raimondo Franchetti, who was a consultant to fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. The Countess is also the great-granddaughter of Louise Sarah Rothschild, of the Rothschild banking family. Perhaps you've heard of them. Before moving on, I should probably mention that Hank's first wife, Margaret Sullivan, who was yet another child of Norfolk, Virginia, also allegedly committed suicide on New Year's Day, 1960. Nine months later, her daughter Bridget followed suit. In 1961... Very soon after the deaths of first her mother and then her sister, Sullivan's other daughter, Brooke Hayward, walked down the aisle with the next young Turk on our list, Dennis Hopper. For those who may be unfamiliar with Hopper's body of work, he is the guy who was once found wandering naked and bewildered in a Mexican forest. And the guy who, after divorcing Hayward in 1969, married Michelle Phillips on Halloween Day, 1970, only to have her file for divorce just eight days later, claiming that Hopper had kept her handcuffed and imprisoned for a week while making unnatural sexual demands. Without passing judgment here, I think it's fair to say that Michelle Phillips has been around the block a time or two, if you catch my drift. So if even she thought Hopper's demands were a bit over the top, then one can only wonder just how unnatural they might have been. For what it's worth, Hopper once told a journalist that he didn't handcuff her, he just punched her out. In his mind, apparently, that made him somewhat less of a troglodyte. Most official biographies of Hopper would lead one to believe that he was the son of a simple farmer, Dennis recently acknowledged, however, that that was clearly not the case. My mother's father was a wheat farmer, and I was raised on their farm. 
but my father was not a farmer. To the contrary, Hopper's dad was a working person in intelligence who during World War II was in OSS. He was in China, Burma, India. Hopper has proudly proclaimed that his father was one of the 100 guys that liberated General Wainwright out of prison in Korea, which might be a little more impressive were it not for the fact that it was actually the Red Army that freed Wainwright and other prisoners. The U.S. intel team just came to pick them up, debrief them, and transport them home. But that, I suppose, isn't really relevant. After the war, according to Hopper, his dad routinely carried a gun, which I suppose is what most lay ministers in the Methodist church do. The family also left the farm in Kansas and relocated to San Diego, California, home of the Imperial Beach Naval Air Station, the United States Naval Radio Station, the United States Naval Amphibious Base, the North Island Naval Air Station, Fort Rosencrans Military Reservation, the United States Naval Training Center, the United States Marine Corps Recruit Depot, and the Miramar Marine Corps Air Station. And just north of the city sits the massive Camp Pendleton Marine Corps Base. Other than that, though, San Diego is just a sleepy little beach town where Hopper's dad ostensibly worked for the post office. The more recent incarnation of Dennis Hopper, by the way, was wildly at odds with the hippie image that he had at one time tried very hard to cultivate. Before his death on May 29, 2010, Hopper was an unapologetic cheerleader for right-wing causes who proudly boasted of having voted a straight Republican ticket for over 30 years. To briefly recap, then, we have thus far met three of the young Turks, and we have found that one of them is the nephew of a bonesman, another is the son of a naval intelligence officer, who was once married to a Rothschild descendant, and the third was the slightly deranged son of an OSS officer. Come to think of it, we have actually covered one of the Turkettes as well, since Jane Fonda obviously came from the same family background as her younger brother Peter. As for the other female members of the posse, Sharon Tate was the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tate. career U.S. Army intelligence officer, and Nancy Sinat Francis Albert Sinatra, whose known associates included Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Sam Giancana, Carlo Gambino, Gutano Lucchese, and Joseph Fischetti, a cousin of Al Capone. Frank Sinatra was also a client of hairdresser to the stars Jay Sebring, as was Henry Fonda, who at one time, strangely enough, lived in the guest house at 10050 Cielo Drive. Yet another client of Sebring's was the next young Turk on our list, Warren Beatty, whose father, Ira Owens Beatty, was ostensibly a professor of psychology. 
Young Warren, however, spent all of his early years living in various spooky suburbs of Washington, D.C. He was born in Richmond, Virginia in 1937, after which his father moved the family to Norfolk, Virginia, which I think I may have mentioned is home to the world's largest naval facility. The reason for that, by the way, is that Norfolk is the gateway to the nation's capital. The family later relocated to Arlington, Virginia, home of the Pentagon, where Warren attended high school and where he was known on the football field as, recalls John Phillips, who attended a rival school, Mad Dog Beatty. Ira Beatty's relatively frequent relocations and the fact that those relocations always seem to land the family in D.C. suburbs that are of considerable significance to the military intelligence community would tend to indicate that Warren's dad was something other than what he appeared to be, though that is, of course, a speculative assessment. But if Ira Beatty was on the payroll of some government entity working within the psychology departments of various D.C. area universities, then it wouldn't require a huge leap of faith to further speculate about what type of work he was doing, given the wholesale co-opting of the field of psychology by the MK Ultra program and affiliated projects. The next young Turk up for review is the one who went on to become arguably the most acclaimed actor of his generation, Mr. Jack Nicholson. Before getting to him, though, let's take a look at a biographical sketch of serial killer Ted Bundy as presented by Wikipedia. Bundy was born at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. The identity of his father remains a mystery. To avoid social stigma, Bundy's grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cole, claimed him as their son. In taking their last name, he became Theodore Robert Cole. He grew up believing his mother, Eleanor Louise Cole, to be his older sister. Bundy biographers Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth state that he learned Louise was actually his mother while he was in high school. True crime writer Anne Rule states that it was around 1969, shortly following a traumatic breakup with his college girlfriend. Now, if we just change a few names here and there... We come up with an accurate bio of Jack Nicholson, which goes something like this. Nicholson was born at some indeterminate location to an underage, unwed showgirl. The identity of his father remains a mystery. To avoid social stigma, Nicholson's grandparents, John Joseph and Ethel Nicholson, claimed him as their son. In taking their last name, he became John Joseph Nicholson, Jr. He grew up believing his mother, June Frances Nicholson, to be his older sister. Reporters state that he learned June was actually his mother in 1974, when he was 37 years old. By then, June had been dead for just over a decade, having only lived to the age of 44. It is said that Nicholson was born at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, but there is no record of such a birth either at the hospital or in the city's archives. As it turns out, Jack Nicholson has no birth certificate. Until 1954, by which time he was nearly an adult, he did not officially exist. 
Even today, the closest thing he has to a birth certificate is a certificate of a delayed report of birth that was filed on May 24, 1954. The document lists John and Ethel Nicholson as the parents and identifies the location of birth as the Nicholson's home address in Neptune, New Jersey. It appears, then, that there is no way to determine who Jack Nicholson really is. He has told journalists that he has no interest in identifying who his father was, nor, it would appear, in verifying his mother's identity. What we do know is that the nucleus of the 1960s clique known as the Young Turks and Turkats was composed of the following individuals, the nephew of a bonesman, the son of an OSS officer, the son of a naval intelligence officer, the daughter of that same naval intelligence officer, the daughter of an army intelligence officer, the daughter of a guy who openly associated with prominent gangsters throughout his life, the son of a possible spycologist, and a guy whose early years are so shrouded in mystery that he may or may not actually exist. I should probably also mention here that Henry Fonda scored his first acting gig through Dorothy Doty Brando, the director of a local theater and the mother of Jack Nicholson's future neighbor, Marlon Brando. Being the small world that it is, Marlon's mom happened to be a good friend of Hank's mom, Elma Fonda. Truth be told, the families likely had close ties for a long time. A very long time. The ancestors of both Marlon Brando and Henry Fonda, you see, arrived in New York at nearly the same time, roughly three and a half centuries ago. Marlon Brando is in a direct line of descent from French Huguenot colonists Louis de Bois and Catherine Blanchon de Bois. And no, I'm not making that up, who arrived in New York from Mannheim, Germany, circa 1660, and promptly founded New Rochelle. Other descendants of Du Bois include former U.S. Senator Leverett Saltonstall, former Massachusetts Governor and Council on Foreign Relations member William Weld, former California First Lady Maria Shriver, and quite likely U.S. Presidents Jimmy Carter and Zachary Taylor. Henry Fonda, on the other hand, is a direct descendant of Jealous Dow Fonda and Hester Jans Fonda, Dutch colonists who arrived in New York circa 1650 and settled near what would become Albany. The Fondas had sailed out of Friesland, Netherlands, on a ship dubbed the Valkenier, which happened to be co-owned by a very wealthy Dutchman by the name of Jean-Baptiste van Rensselaer. And Mr. van Rensselaer as those who have been paying attention in class will recall, happened to be from the bloodline that would one day produce a guy by the name of David Van Cortland Crosby. It would appear, then, that Peter Fonda kind of owed Crosby that Triumph motorcycle that he gave him back in the 60s, what with David's ancestors having been cool enough to give Peter's ancestors a lift over to the New World and all. Let's wrap up this chapter with a quick review of what we have learned about the people populating Laurel Canyon in the mid to late 1960s. 
we know that one subset of residents was a large group of musicians who all decided nearly simultaneously to flood into the canyon. The most prominent members of this group were, to an overwhelming degree, the sons and daughters of the military intelligence community. We also know that mingled in with them were the young stars of Hollywood, who were also, to an astonishing degree, the sons and daughters of the military intelligence community. And finally, we know that also in the mix were scores of military intelligence personnel who operated out of the facility known as Lookout Mountain Laboratory. I've got to say that given the relatively small size of Laurel Canyon, I'm beginning to wonder if there was any room left over for any normal folks who might have <laughs> wanted to live the rock and roll lifestyle. Chapter 9. Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon There were a lot of weird people around. There was one guy who had a parrot called Captain Blood, and he was always scrawling really cryptic things on the inside walls of my house. Neil Young's, too. Joni Mitchell, describing the Laurel Canyon scene toward the end of the 1960s. As it turns out, Laurel Canyon was large enough to accommodate at least a few more strange characters. Two of them were guys named Jerry Brown and Mike Kerb. Actually, it's unclear whether Kerb ever lived there, but he was very much a part of the scene in the 1960s and 1970s. Edmund G. Jerry Brown Jr. had a decidedly conservative upbringing. Born into a politically well-connected Republican family, Jerry devoted his early years to pursuing a career in the Jesuit priesthood. His father, a very active Republican Party operative, was an aspiring politician who initially had no luck in getting himself elected to public office. He ultimately succeeded, though, in capturing the coveted California governor's seat in 1959, and he did it by employing a simple gimmick he changed the R after his name to a D and was reborn as a Democrat. He held the seat for two terms through to 1967 and then was replaced by a guy who had employed the exact same trick in reverse. He had replaced the D after his name with an R. That gentleman, of course was Ronald Wilson Reagan, and he would govern the state through 1975, after which he handed the reins back over to the Brown family, this time to the younger Edmund Brown, who, like his dad, had decided that he was a liberal Democrat. In fact, according to the consensus opinion of the media at the time, Jerry was an ultra-liberal extremist, whose politics fell somewhere to the left of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. During Laurel Canyon's glory years, Jerry Brown resided in a home on Wonderland Avenue, within easy walking distance of the Wonderland Death House and the homes of numerous singers, songwriters, and musicians. His circle of friends in those days, as was widely reported, included the elite of Laurel Canyon's country rock stars, including Linda Ronstadt, 
with whom he was long rumored to be romantically involved, Jackson Brown and the Eagles. Another figure making the rounds in Laurel Canyon during the same period of time was Mike Kerb. At various times, Kerb worked as a musician, composer, recording artist, film producer, and record company executive. He also had the notable distinction of serving as the musical director on the notorious documentary feature Mondo Hollywood, which ostensibly chronicled the emerging Laurel Canyon sunset strip scene. Filmed from 1965 through 1967, the film featured representatives from the Manson family, Bobby Beausoleil, the Manson family's victims, Jay Sebring, the Freak Troop, Vito, Carl, Sue, and Godo, and Laurel Canyon's musical fraternity, Frank Zappa, along with his future wife, Gail Slotman. It also featured acid guru Richard Alpert, Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown, and Princess Margaret, a good friend to John Phillips and a rumored lover of Mick Jagger. As noted, Mondo Hollywood was the creation of filmmaker Robert Carl Cohen. It turns out that he, too, had an interesting background for a guy destined to capture on film the emerging 1960s countercultural scene. In 1954, Cohen served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. The following year, he was on assignment to NATO. Following that, he served in special services in Germany. The very next year, he produced, directed, edited, and narrated a documentary short entitled Inside Red China. Two years later, he wore all the same hats for a documentary entitled Inside East Germany. A few years later, he put together another documentary entitled Three Cubans, a decidedly unsympathetic take on the Cuban Revolution. Cohen has proudly proclaimed that he was the first, or at least among the first, Western journalists, filmmakers, allowed to enter and shoot footage in each of those ostensibly communist countries. In the case of Cuba, and likely the others as well, he did so under the direct sponsorship of the U.S. State Department. Mr. Cohen would like us to believe that he undertook those projects as nothing more than what he outwardly appeared to be, an independent filmmaker. But a great deal of naivete is required to believe that a private citizen not working for the intelligence community could land such assignments. The Los Angeles Times, in a lengthy critique of Cohen's counterculture film published on October 1, 1967, offered up some curious and long-forgotten facts about the documentary feature. I cannot presume to guess how much real-life folks through Mondo Hollywood, in violent, sudden ways, real death did intrude during the 18 months of picture-making. Three people were killed in automobile crashes. One of them was Jane Mansfield, whose brief appearance as a celebrity in a montage of premieres remains in the final movie. The other two, including a bona fide philosopher, were scheduled to appear but died before filming. A writer who was to play himself died of drugs. A three-year-old child died of a fall through a trap door, although he and his parents are still in the picture. A pilot who had agreed to fly in the film died of a mid-air crash. 
In all, six people, none of them old, none of them in bed, died before Mondo Hollywood was released. Several buildings were also destroyed in this impermanent palace. And the Goodyear blimp, which provided the platform for some spectacular aerials in the finished movie, crashed one day after its chores were done. It appears then that just as in the real Laurel Canyon, Cohen's celluloid version masked a backdrop of violence, destruction, and death. As for Mike Kerb, in addition to his work on Mondo Hollywood, he also served as song producer on another key countercultural film of the era, Riot on the Sunset Strip, which, despite its title, had little to do with the actual event. In addition, Kerb scored a slew of cheaply produced biker flicks, including The Wild Angels, Devil's Angels, Born Losers, The Savage Seven, and The Glory Stompers. Along the way, he worked alongside many of Laurel Canyon's young Turks, including Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. It is unclear whether the paths of Jerry Brown and Mike Kerb crossed during Laurel Canyon's glory years, but as fate would have it, they were to cross in 1979 in Sacramento, California. Mike Kerb, as it turns out, after being encouraged by Ronald Reagan to venture into politics, was elected to serve as Governor Jerry Brown's second-in-command. And so it was that these two men, both veterans of the 1960s Laurel Canyon scene, came to sit side-by-side side in the governor's mansion, one sporting a D after his name and the other an R. Governor Brown, however, had little time to spend on actually governing the state of California. Tossing his hat into the presidential ring, he spent much of his time out of the state working the campaign trail. That allowed Lieutenant Governor Kerb, as acting governor of the state, to sign into law a withering array of reactionary legislation that was very far removed from what the people of California thought they were getting when they elected Governor Moonbeam. This arrangement allowed the nominal liberal of the Laurel Canyon tag team, Jerry Brown, to keep his hands clean, even as his administration moved far away from its originally stated goals and even as he made little effort to rein in his underling. Brown and Kerb weren't the only up-and-coming politicos who managed to find living space in Laurel Canyon back in the day. In July 2008, the venerable Washington Post revealed that a former reporter and novelist by the name of Alex Abella had written a history of Rand, which was founded more than 60 years ago by the Air Force as a font of ideas on how that service might fight and win a nuclear war with the USSR. Abella focuses on Albert Wolstetter, a mathematical logician turned nuclear strategist who was the dominant figure at Rand starting in the early 1950s and whose influence has extended beyond his death in 1997 into the current Bush administration. Wallstetter epitomized what became known as the Rand Approach, a relentlessly reductive, determinedly quantitative analysis of whatever problem the independent, non-profit think tank was assigned, whether the design of a new bomber or improving public education in inner-city schools. 
The Rand Corporation is a lot of things, but independent has never been one of them. Also in the Post's book review we find that it was not so much Wallstetter himself as his acolytes who had a major impact in Washington. Most of those acolytes need little introduction. Former Assistant Secretary of Defense Richard Pearl, who once dated Wallstetter's daughter, former U.S. Ambassador, President of the World Bank, and Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the U.N., Zalmay Kalazad, and Andrew Marshall, who has served as the Director of the United States Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment for 40 years, and who served as mentor to Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. In the latter half of the 1950s and into the early 1960s, while Wolstetter was with the Rand Corporation and also serving as a professor at UCLA, and while his wife Roberta also worked as an analyst for Rand, Albert and his followers, the men who would serve as the architects of U.S. foreign policy during the George W. Bush administration, regularly met in a heavily wooded neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon. As Greg Herkin wrote in his review of Abella's book, those bright, eager, and ambitious young men had sat cross-legged on the floor with their mentor <coughs> at his stylish house in Laurel Canyon. Just as, not far away, Vito's eager young followers sat cross-legged with their mentor. And just as, also not far away, Charles Manson's eager young followers would sit cross-legged on the floor with their mentor. Paul Young, writing in L.A. Exposed, revealed that in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was another curious group calling Laurel Canyon home. The most infamous male madam throughout L.A.'s sordid history would have to be Billy Briars, the wealthy son of an oil magnate and part-time producer of gay porn. Briars was said to have a stellar group of customers using his brothel at the summit of Laurel Canyon. In fact, some have claimed that none other than J. Edgar Hoover, the founder and chief executive officer of the FBI, was one of his best clients. When Briars fell under police scrutiny in 1973, allegedly for trafficking in child pornography, officers obtained a number of confessions from some of his hustlers, and some of them identified Hoover and Clyde Tolson as Mother John and Uncle Mike, and claimed that they had serviced them on numerous occasions. It appears, then, that the top law enforcement officials in the nation were also part of the Laurel Canyon scene, along with various other unnamed persons of prominence. And we also find, perhaps not too shockingly at this point, that Laurel Canyon was a portal of child pornography. In January of 2011, the San Francisco Chronicle reported on the passing of Ron Patterson, the flamboyant, free-spirited creator of the Renaissance and Dickens fairs, who had died January 15 at a friend's house in Sausalito after an illness. He was 80. As staff writer Carolyn Jones noted in the article, Patterson's creation was sort of a medieval precursor to Burning Man. And Burning Man is, of course, 
a rather explicitly occult ritual first performed on the summer solstice of 1986 and now performed every summer in Nevada's Black Rock Desert before an audience of over 50,000. In the beginning, the Renaissance Fair was an experiment in Mr. Patterson's backyard. In the early 1960s, Mr. Patterson and his wife, Phyllis, who were both interested in theater and art, began hosting children's improvisational theater workshops at their Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles County home. One naturally wonders whether aspiring thespian and golden child Godo Polikas, originally cast, it will be recalled, to play the lead in Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising, was involved in those workshops. In any event, there is something decidedly creepy about children's workshops being hosted in a small, tight-knit community that was home to a child pornography ring and more than its fair share of pedophiles. Yet another curious character to take up residence in Laurel Canyon was producer Paul Rothschild, who played a key role in shaping the sound of both The Doors and Love. In June 1981, Sports Illustrated publisher Philip Howlett penned a short piece to introduce readers to new writer Bjorn Rostang. Born in Lincoln, New York, Rostang grew up in various places in Connecticut, where he attended what he recalls as an even dozen schools. I got my B.A. and Master's in English from the University of Connecticut, he says. Then I did part of a Ph.D. at the University of Washington before going into the Army Intelligence Corps in 1959. We had Paul Rothschild, who later became producer for The Doors and Janis Joplin, to give you some idea of what the unit was like. It was in all likelihood, like countless other intelligence units designed to churn out shapers of public opinion, whether actors, novelists, newsmen, or, in this case, sports writers and producers of popular music. It is quite shocking, of course, to learn that the handler of two of Laurel Canyon's most influential and groundbreaking bands had a background in intelligence work. Apparently, the search is still on for anyone of any prominence in the Laurel Canyon scene who didn't have direct connections to the intelligence community. Bjorn Rostang would, perhaps not surprisingly, develop his own indirect connections to the Laurel Canyon music scene. His most notable contribution to the field of literature was penning the mass-market paperback version of Phantom of the Paradise, the campy tale of a Phil Spector-inspired music producer who had sold his soul to the devil for fame and fortune, and who subsequently manipulated a disfigured young singer-songwriter into likewise selling his soul. The theatrical version, released on Halloween Day 1974, and carrying the tagline, He Sold His Soul for Rock and Roll, starred Laurel Canyon's own Paul Williams as Swan, the demonic producer who surrounds himself with nubile young women eager to do his bidding. Williams, who lived on Lookout Mountain alongside numerous other singer-songwriters, also scored the film. It is, I'm sure, entirely coincidental that two guys who emerged from the same intelligence unit in the early 1960s would follow such curious career paths. 
One, Paul Rothschild, becoming what many on the scene in those days would have described as a demonic rock music producer. And the other, Bjorn Rostang, penning a novel about a demonic rock music producer. There was one other person who, while he never took up residence in Laurel Canyon, had a profound influence on the scene. That guy was Augustus Owsley Stanley III, the premier LSD chemist of the hippie era. No one, not Ken Kesey, not Richard Alpert, not even Timothy Leary, did more to turn on the youth of the 1960s than Owsley. Leary and his cohorts may have captured the national media spotlight and created public awareness, but it was Owsley who flooded the streets of San Francisco and Laurel Canyon with consistently high-quality, inexpensive, readily available acid. By most accounts, he was never in it for the money, and he routinely gave away more of his product than he sold. What then was his motive? According to Martin Lee and Bruce Schlein, writing in Acid Dreams, Owsley cultivated an image as a wizard alchemist whose intentions with LSD were priestly and magical. Owsley is revered by many as something of an icon of the 1960s counterculture, a man motivated by nothing more than an altruistic desire to turn on the world, but his rather provocative background and family history suggest that his intentions may not have necessarily been so altruistic. Augustus Owsley Stanley III was the son, naturally enough, of Augustus Owsley Stanley II, who served as a military officer during World War II aboard the USS Lexington and thereafter found work in Washington, D.C. as a government attorney. He raised his son primarily in Arlington, Virginia. Young Owsley's grandfather was Augustus Owsley Stanley, who served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1903 through 1915, as the governor of Kentucky from 1915 through 1919, and as a U.S. senator from 1919 through 1925. Senator Stanley's father, a minister with the Disciples of Christ, served as a judge advocate with the Confederate Army. Owsley's mother was a niece of William Owsley, who also served as a governor of Kentucky from 1844 through 1848, and who lent his name to Owsley County, Kentucky. During Owsley III's formative years, he attended the prestigious Charlotte Hall Military Academy in Maryland, but was reportedly tossed out in the ninth grade for being intoxicated. Not long after that, at the tender age of 15, Owsley voluntarily committed himself to St. Elizabeth Hospital in the nation's capital. St. Elizabeth's, it should be noted, had a far more sinister name upon its founding in 1855, the Government Hospital for the Insane. He remained confined there for treatment for the next 15 months. During that time, his mother, in keeping with one of the recurrent themes of this saga, passed away. Owsley apparently resumed his education following his curious confinement, but he had reportedly dropped out of school by the age of 18. Nevertheless, he apparently had no trouble at all gaining acceptance to the University of Virginia, 
which he attended for a time before enlisting in the U.S. Air Force in 1956 at the age of 21. During his military service, Owsley was an electronics specialist working in radio intelligence and radar. After his stint in the Air Force, Owsley set up camp in the Los Angeles area ostensibly to study ballet. During that same time, he also worked at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was undoubtedly the primary reason for his move to L.A. In 1963, Owsley moved once again, this time to Berkeley, California, which just happened to be ground zero of the budding anti-war movement. He may or may not have briefly attended UC Berkeley, which is where he allegedly cribbed the recipe for LSD from the university library. Owsley soon began cooking up both methadrine and LSD in a makeshift bathroom lab near the campus of the university. On February 21, 1965, that lab was raided by state narcotics agents who seized all his lab equipment and charged Stanley with operating a meth lab. As Barry Miles recounted in Hippie, Berkeley was awash with speed, and Owsley was responsible for much of it. Nevertheless, Owsley walked away from the raid unscathed, and with the help of his attorney, who happened to be the vice mayor of Berkeley, he even successfully sued to have all his lab equipment returned. He quickly put that equipment to work, producing some four million tabs of nearly pure LSD in the mid-1960s. Immediately after the raid of February 1965, Owsley and his frequent sidekicks, the Grateful Dead, moved down to the Watts area of Los Angeles, of all places, to ostensibly conduct acid tests. The group rented a house that was conveniently located right next door to a brothel, curiously paralleling the modus operandi of various intelligence operatives who were, or had been, involved in conducting their own acid tests. The band departed the communal dwelling in April 1965. It was a fortuitous departure, as it turned out, since just a few months later, Watts exploded in violence that left 34 corpses littering the streets. Owsley had been with the dead from the band's earliest days, as both a financial backer and as their sound engineer. He is credited with numerous electronic innovations that changed the way live rock music was presented to the masses, and likely not in a good way, given that his work as a sound technician undoubtedly drew heavily upon his military training. In 1967, Owsley unleashed on the hate a particularly nasty hallucinogen known as STP. Developed by the friendly folks at Dow Chemical, STP had been tested extensively at Frank Zappa's former home, the Edgewood Arsenal, as a possible bio-warfare agent before being distributed to hippies as a recreational drug. Owsley reportedly obtained the recipe from Alexander Shulgin, a former Harvard man who developed a keen interest in psychopharmacology. While serving in the U.S. Navy, Shulgin worked for many years as a senior research chemist at Dow, 
and later worked very closely with the DEA. In 1970, Owsley began serving time after conviction on drug charges. That time was served, appropriately enough, at Terminal Island Federal Correctional Institution, the very same prison that had, just a few years earlier, housed both Charlie Manson and Flying Burrito Brothers road manager Phil Kaufman. A few years later, it would also be home to both Timothy Leary and his alleged nemesis, G. Gordon Liddy. After his release, Owsley continued to work as a sound technician, eventually graduating to a new medium, television. Owsley eventually moved to Australia in the 1980s, becoming a naturalized citizen in 1996. On March 12, 2012, the aging chemist was reportedly killed in an automobile accident near his Queensland home when his car veered off the road in a storm and plowed into some trees. Chapter 10. Helter Skelter in a Summer Swelter. Return of the Death List. Everybody was experimenting and taking it all the way. It opened up a negative force of energy that was almost demonic. Frank Mazzola, editor of the film Performance. It is now, sad to say, time to add some more names to the ever-growing Laurel Canyon death list. The first new name is Mr. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who purportedly drowned without assistance in his home swimming pool on July 3, 1969, at the age of 27. Jim Morrison would allegedly die precisely two years later, also at the age of 27. Just three days after Jones' tragic death, the Stones, with the Hells Angels providing security, played a previously scheduled concert in Hyde Park, footage of which appears in Kenneth Anger's Invocation of My Demon Brother. Despite being the founder of the Stones and being widely regarded as the main creative force within the band, Jones had been unceremoniously dumped by the group on June 9, less than a month before his death. He was replaced just four days later by Mick Taylor, who in turn was later replaced by Ron Wood. It would later be claimed that Jones was booted from the band due to his chronic substance abuse problems, although Keith Richards' legendary drug intake never seemed to pose a problem for the group. The Rolling Stones were not, to be sure, a Laurel Canyon band, but they did spend a considerable amount of time there, and they were very closely tied to the scene. As Barney Hoskins writes in Hotel California, In the summer of 1968, the English band was flirting heavily with Satanism and the occult, and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. A lot of time, that is in and around Laurel Canyon, and during that time, Mick Jagger was involved in two occult-drenched, Crowley-influenced film projects, Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising and Donald Camel's Performance. Jagger was the first musical superstar tapped by Anger to compose a soundtrack for his Lucifer Rising project, which at the time was to star Mansonite Bobby Beausoleil, 
Anger would later solicit a soundtrack for the long-delayed film project from Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, the proud owner of one of the world's largest collections of Aleister Crowley's memorabilia, including Crowley's notorious bullskin estate on the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness. When ultimately released, however, the film featured a soundtrack by neither Jagger nor Page, but rather one that was composed, recorded, and arranged inside a prison cell by convicted murderer Bobby Beausoleil. The footage that Anger had shot of Beausoleil, meanwhile, ended up in a different film, the aforementioned Invocation of My Demon Brother, co-starring in Lucifer Rising as Osiris, was performance writer and co-director Donald Seaton Camel, who happened to be a good friend of Roman Polanski. Camel, who some described as a master manipulator, was the son of Charles Richard Camel, who happened to be a close friend and biographer of notorious occultist Alistair Crowley. Donald himself was, or at least claimed to be, Crowley's godson. Camel's decidedly Crowleyan film was originally to star his good friend Marlon Brando, but the role ultimately went to actor James Fox. Brando and Camel did, however, find time to write a novel together. Speaking of Brando, he somehow found himself at the center of a curious string of deaths that began on May 16, 1990, when Marlon's son, Christian, gunned down Dag Drollet, the father of his sister Cheyenne's unborn child, in Marlin's Laurel Canyon adjacent home. Though convicted, Christian got off with a rather light sentence, thanks primarily to Marlin having had his own daughter, the prosecution's potential star witness, locked away in a mental institution in Tahiti, safe from subpoena. A few years later, on April 14, 1995, 25-year-old Cheyenne was found swinging from the end of a rope, her death unsurprisingly ruled a suicide. The next year, Christian Brando was released from prison and promptly became involved with a woman by the name of Bonnie Lee Bakley, who caught a bullet to the head on May 4, 2001, while in the company of new hubby Robert Blake, her tenth husband. Marlon dropped dead next on July 1, 2004, though his death wasn't particularly shocking, given that he was getting on in years. His home was promptly purchased by good friend and neighbor Jack Nicholson, who immediately announced plans to bulldoze it, declaring the structure to be decrepit. He never did, though, explain why a man wealthy enough to own his own Polynesian island was purportedly living in a derelict home. A few years later, on January 26 of 2008, Christian Brando dropped dead at the relatively young age of 49. Returning now, after that brief digression, to our discussion of Donald Camel's performance, we find that Mick Jagger was cast to play the role of Turner, a debauched rock star, which obviously was a real stretch for Mick. James Fox played Chaz, a violent organized crime figure. He was trained for the role by David Litvinoff, a real-life crime figure and associate of the notoriously sadistic Cray Brothers. Litvinoff reportedly sent Fox to the south of London for a couple of months to hang out with his gangster buddies. When he returned, according to various accounts, Fox had literally become the violent character he portrayed in the film. 
After completing work on the project, Fox reportedly suffered a massive nervous breakdown, suspended his acting career, and withdrew from public view for over a decade. Recruited to create the film's soundtrack was Bernard Alfred Jack Nietzsche, an occultist and the son of a supposed medium. Nietzsche, along with Sonny Bono, had begun his music career as a lieutenant for gun-brandishing producer Phil Spector. Nietzsche was one of the architects of Spector's famed Wall of Sound. Nietzsche was also a familiar presence on the Laurel Canyon scene, collaborating with such noted bands and artists as Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Randy Newman, Michelle Phillips, The Turtles, Captain Beefheart, Carol King, David Blue, Ricky Nelson, and Tim Buckley. Nietzsche's performance soundtrack was composed, according to author Michael Walker, in a witch's cottage in the canyon. I'm not exactly sure what a witch's cottage is, but it's nice to know that Laurel Canyon had one. One of the musicians hired by Nietzsche to play on that soundtrack was Lowell George, who we will also be adding to the Laurel Canyon death list. For now, let's add Donald Camel to the list, since on April 24, 1996, he became yet another of the characters in this story to catch a bullet to the head and yet another to allegedly die by his own hand. David Litvinoff, performance's director of authenticity, reportedly also committed suicide. Nietzsche died of a heart attack on August 25, 2000. A few years earlier, he had made an appearance on primetime television as a gun-brandishing drunkard arrested on the streets of Hollywood on Cops. The next name on the death list is Steve Brandt, who is a close friend of both John Phillips and one of the victims at 10050 Cielo Drive. Brandt allegedly overdosed on barbiturates in late November of 1969, some three and a half months after the Manson murders. In the days and weeks following those murders, Brandt had placed numerous phone calls to the LAPD. Those calls became increasingly frantic in nature, and Brandt became increasingly fearful that his own life might be in jeopardy. He soon decided to put some distance between himself and L.A., so he headed for New York City. On the night of his death, according to Phillips' autobiography, Brandt attended a Rolling Stones concert at Madison Square Garden, where he attempted to run on stage, but was repelled and beaten by a security guard. He then went home, and according to official mythology, overdosed. It seems obvious that if someone had information that desperately needed to be made public, and if it was the kind of information that authorities had, say, willfully failed to act upon, and if the information was of the type that could not be taken to the mainstream media, and if the year was 1969, and the mass communication technology that we now take for granted did not yet exist, then grabbing the mic at a Stones concert at Madison Square Garden might just be one of the most effective means of disseminating that information. Brandt failed in what may have been an attempt to do just that, and he turned up dead just hours later. Next up is David Blue, another of the forgotten talents of Laurel Canyon. 
Blue was born Stuart David Cohen on February 18, 1941. Shortly thereafter, his father was deployed overseas. According to David, his dad came hobbling home on crutches and stayed depressed all his life. Not unlike, it seems fair to say, the family situation of our old friend Phil Oakes. David and his slightly older half-sister, Suzanne, endured a hellish existence, consisting of alternating periods of rages and silences. Suzanne got out first, only to end up busted for prostitution in New York City in 1963. Suzanne's next stop, just a few months later, was at the county morgue. David, meanwhile, had gotten out of the house as well by dropping out of school and joining the U.S. Navy at the age of 17, just as Lenny Bruce had done. And, like Jimi Hendrix, Blue was reportedly booted out of the service, after which he decided to become a folk singer. His first album was released in 1966. A later effort was produced by Graham Nash, who also, as previously noted, produced a record for the forgotten talent Judy Sill, with whom Blue had much in common. Like Sill, David Blue was one of the Laurel Canyon stars who never quite shone as brightly as they should have. And also, like Sill, Blue was one of the first few acts signed by David Geffen's fledgling Asylum label. Finally, as with Judy, David was long forgotten by the time of his death on December 2, 1982, when the 41-year-old Blue dropped dead while jogging in New York's Washington Square Park. The former rising star and occasional actor lay in the morgue for three days before anyone noticed that he was missing. Next on the list is Ricky Nelson, who, like Brandon DeWild, Kenneth Anger, Mickey Dolenz, and Van Dyke Parks, began his Hollywood career as a child actor, he was the son, as everyone surely knows, of America's favorite 1950s TV mom and dad, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson. Ricky began his rock and roll career in 1957, when he was just 17. By 1962, he had scored no fewer than 30 top 40 hits, trailing only superstars Elvis Presley and Pat Boone. Speaking of Elvis, he arrived in L.A. in 1956 to begin what would prove to be a prolific film career that would continue throughout the 1960s and would result in the inexcusable creation of nearly three dozen motion pictures. In the early years of his film career, Elvis reportedly spent his off hours hanging out with his two best Hollywood pals, a couple of young roommates and Canyonites named Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams. In later years, Presley's backing musicians, considered to be among the best session musicians in the business, were in high demand among the Laurel Canyon crowd. Elvis's bass player, for example, can be heard on some of the Doors tracks. The entire band was recruited by Papa John Phillips to play on his less-than-memorable solo project. Mike Nesmith's critically acclaimed post-Monkeys project, The First National Band, featured Presley's band as well. Graham Parsons also hired Elvis's band to back him up on the two solo albums he recorded at what proved to be the twilight of his life and career. 
Those two solo efforts by Parsons, by the way, prominently featured the voice of a young singer-guitarist named Emmy Lou Harris, a relatively late arrival to the canyon scene. Harris was the daughter, brace yourselves here for a real shocker, folks, of a career U.S. Marine Corps officer. As with so many other characters in this story, she grew up in the outlying suburbs of Washington, D.C., primarily in Woodbridge, Virginia, which happens to be the home of an imposingly large Army research and development installation known as the Harry Diamond Laboratories Woodridge Research Facility. In 1972, during the time that Parsons and Harris were recording and performing together, columnist Jack Anderson revealed that experiments to control human behavior with science fiction devices are being conducted secretly at the Army's high-fenced Harry Diamond Laboratories in Washington. Ultimately, human guinea pigs will be used to test the devices. Although a classified memorandum in our hands specifies the tests are for riot and civil disturbance control, the memo admits the general purpose is short time span control of human behavior. It sounds as though Emmy Lou Harris probably fit right in with the rest of the Laurel Canyon crowd. But here I seem to have digressed from our discussion of Elvis, which was, if I remember correctly, itself a digression from our discussion of Ricky Nelson. Given though that he had only peripheral connections to Laurel Canyon, I guess I really don't have much more to say about Elvis, other than he reportedly died on August 16, 1977, the victim of a drug overdose at the young age of 42. As with Morrison, however, there have been persistent rumors that Elvis didn't actually die at all, but rather reinvented himself to escape from the fishbowl. Also, as with Morrison, Elvis apparently had a keen interest in the occult, primarily the writings of Madame Blavatsky. As for Nelson, in the mid-1960s, he successfully shed his teen idol image and emerged as a respected pioneer of the country rock wave that Canyonites Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, and the Eagles would soon ride to dizzying heights of commercial success. One future member of the Eagles, Randy Meisner, played in Nelson's Stone Canyon Band. As the name of the band would seem to imply, Nelson had moved to one of the many neighboring canyons, but he had previously lived on Mount Olympus in Laurel Canyon, and he and his band were very much a part of the early country rock scene that included bands like The Birds, Poco, The Flying Burrito Brothers, and The First National Band. Nelson was killed on New Year's Eve, 1985, in a rather unusual plane crash. According to Nelson's Wikipedia entry, the original NTSB investigation long ago stated that the crash was probably due to mechanical problems. The pilots attempted to land in a field after smoke filled the cabin. An examination indicated that a fire originated in the right-hand side of the aft cabin area at or near the floor line. The passengers were killed when the aircraft struck obstacles during the forced landing. The pilots were able to escape through the cockpit windows and survived. Nothing unusual about that, I suppose. Shit happens. For the final eight years of his life, Nelson lived in a rather unique home. 
1941, swashbuckling actor Errol Flynn had purchased an 11-and-a-half-acre chunk of the Hollywood Hills just off Mulholland Drive and had a sprawling home built to his specifications. According to Laurel Jacobson and Mark Wanamaker, writing in Haunted Hollywood, the mansion featured several mysterious secret passageways and more than a few peepholes. The home appeared to have been designed to allow for surreptitious observation of guests in the home's numerous bedrooms. It is claimed that Flynn incorporated the unusual design features so that he could satisfy his own voyeuristic impulses. Researcher-writer Charles Hyam, however, has cast Flynn as a Western intelligent asset, and if true, then it is far more likely that the home was built not so much for Flynn's personal pleasure, but rather as a means of compromising prominent public figures. After Nelson's death, the palatial home stood vacant until a curious incident took place. Referring once again to Jacobson and Wanamaker, we find that a gang broke in and murdered a girl in the living room. Then a mysterious fire burned half the house. The ruins were torn down. Like I said, shit happens. Moving on to the next name on the list, we find that on December 31, 1943, precisely 42 years before the plane crash that would claim the life of Ricky Nelson, Henry John Duchendorf Jr., better known as John Denver, was born in Roswell, New Mexico. A few years later, the town of Roswell would make a name for itself and become something of a tourist destination. But that is not really the focus here, though it should be noted that Henry John Duchendorf Sr. might well have known a little something about that incident, given that he was a career U.S. Air Force officer assigned to the Roswell Army Airfield later renamed the Walker Air Force Base, which was likely the origin of the object that famously crashed in Roswell. After spending his childhood being frequently uprooted, as did many of our cast of characters, Denver attended Texas Tech University in the early 1960s. In 1964, he apparently heard the call of the Pied Piper and promptly dropped out of school and headed for L.A., once there, he joined up with the Chad Mitchell Trio, the group from which Jim McGinn had recently departed to co-found The Birds. By November 1966, Denver was front and center at the so-called Riot on the Sunset Strip, alongside folks like Peter Fonda, Sal Mineo, and a popular husband and wife duo known as Sonny and Cher. A decade later, in the later half of the 1970s, Denver could be found working alongside a spooky chap by the name of Werner Erhard, creator of the so-called EST training. After graduating from the training program, Denver penned a little ditty that became the organization's theme song. In 1985, Denver testified alongside our old friend Frank Zappa at the PMRC hearings. Twelve years later, in autumn of 1997, Denver died when his self-piloted plane crashed soon after taking off from Monterey Airport, very near where the Monterey Pop Festival had been held 30 years earlier. The date of the crash, curiously enough, was one that we have stumbled across before, October 12. 
The next name we need to add to the list is one that has already worked its way into this narrative a time or two, Sonny Bono. As previously noted, Bono began his Hollywood career as a lieutenant for reclusive murderer Phil Spector. In the early 1960s, Bono hooked up with an underage Sherilyn Sarkisian Lapierre to form a duo known first as Caesar and Cleo, and then as Sonny and Cher. The pair were phenomenally successful, first on the Sunset Strip and later on television. Bono, of course, ultimately gave up the Hollywood life and found work in a different branch of the federal government, the U.S. House of Representatives. On January 5, 1998, Sonny Bono died after purportedly skiing into a tree. At the time, he occupied a seat on the House Judiciary Committee, which was about to come to sudden prominence with the investigation and impeachment of President Clinton. The ball was already rolling by the time of Bono's death, and on January 26, 1998, just three weeks after the alleged skiing accident, Clinton held his now-notorious press conference. By that time, Bono's seat on the panel had been set aside for his robo-wife. Let's turn our attention now to Phil Hartman, the Saturday Night Live alumnus who was murdered in his Encino home on May 28, 1998. That much is not in dispute. Decidedly less clear is the answer to the question of who it was that actually shot and killed Hartman. The official story holds that it was his wife Bryn, who shortly thereafter shot herself, with a different gun, naturally, and reportedly after she had left the house and then returned with a friend and after the LAPD had arrived at the home. There is a very strong possibility, however, that both Phil and his wife were murdered, with the true motive for the crime covered up by trotting out the tired but ever-popular murder-suicide scenario. In most people's minds, of course, Phil Hartman is not associated with the Laurel Canyon scene of the late 1960s and early 1970s. But as it turns out, Hartman did indeed have substantial ties to that scene. To begin with, during the time that Jimi Hendrix lived in L.A., in the spacious mansion just north of the log cabin on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, Hartman worked for him as a roadie. Soon after that, Phil found work as a graphic artist, and he quickly found himself much in demand by the Laurel Canyon rock royalty. In addition to designing album covers for both Poco and America, Hartman also designed a readily recognizable rock symbol that has endured for over 40 years, the distinctive CSN logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Hartman was also the brother of record executive club proprietor John Hartman, who was an associate of David Geffen. Hartman had begun his career as a protege of Elvis handler Colonel Tom Parker, who in the 1940s had worked with cowboy actor, log cabin owner Tom Mix. And Tom Mix, in turn, had frequently used the Spawn Movie Ranch as a filming location. That same ranch later became the home of Charles Manson and his girls, including Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who happened to have been a high school chum of Phil Hartman. Curiously enough, the Log Cabin's guest house, also known as the Bird House, was designed and built by architect Robert Bird, 
who also, according to one report, designed the house at 10050 Cielo Drive, where Sharon Tate and friends were murdered, and the house at 5065 Encino Avenue, where Phil Hartman was murdered. Phil Hartman was not the only Laurel Canyon luminary who had passed school ties to Squeaky Fromm. Mark Volman, co-lead vocalist for the Turtles, knew Ms. Fromm from their days together in Westchester, where they attended Orville Wright Junior High School. During the days of the Manson clan's stay at the now infamous Spawn Ranch, there was a similarly dilapidated movie set that was located right across the road, its name, being the small world that it is, was the Wonderland Movie Ranch. Speaking of Wonderland, let's turn our attention next to four individuals whose names will probably not be familiar to most readers. Ronald Launius, Billy Deverell, Barbara Richardson, and Joy Miller. All died on July 1, 1981, all by bludgeoning, and all at the same location, 8763 Wonderland Avenue in Laurel Canyon. All were members of a gang that trafficked heavily in cocaine and occasionally in heroin. The leader of the group was Ron Launius, who reportedly embarked on his criminal career and established his drug connections while serving for Uncle Sam over in Vietnam, which is also where he began to build his carefully crafted reputation as a merciless, cold-blooded killer. At the time that he became a murder victim himself, Launius was a suspect in no fewer than 27 open homicide investigations. He was also a drug supplier to various members of the Laurel Canyon aristocracy, including Chuck Negron of Three Dog Night. Victim Billy Deverell was Launius's second in command, and victim Joy Miller was Billy's girlfriend, as well as the renter of the Laurel Canyon drug den. Victim Barbara Richardson was the girlfriend of another member of the gang, David Lind, who conveniently was not at the home at the time of the mass murder. That could well have been due to the fact that Lind was, according to various rival drug dealers, a police informant for both the Sacramento and Los Angeles police departments. He was also a member of the ultra-violent prison gang known as the Aryan Brotherhood, as is, by several accounts, Bobby Beausoleil. Lind, who met Launius when the two had served time together, is alleged to have overdosed in 1995, though it is widely believed that he actually went into the Federal Witness Protection Program. A year and a half earlier, another drug dealer with close connections to the music scene was brutally murdered in his Laurel Canyon home, though his death was dismissed by the LAPD as a suicide. Lawrence Eugene Larry Williams was a singer, songwriter, musician, producer, and actor, born on May 10, 1935, in New Orleans, Louisiana. He achieved some success in the late 1950s as a solo artist before being convicted and sent to prison on drug-dealing charges in 1960. Following a three-year prison stint, he returned to the music business, working frequently with longtime friend Little Richard. He also continued to spend a good deal of time in the violent world of drug trafficking and prostitution. Williams had no shortage of fans among the Laurel Canyon and British Invasion bands. 
The Beatles scored a hit with his Dizzy Miss Lizzie, and the Rolling Stones covered his She Said Yeah. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Williams also tried his hand at acting, including a co-starring role alongside O.J. Simpson in 1974's The Klansman. He failed to achieve significant success in the entertainment business. His lavish lifestyle, however, indicated that he did very well for himself as a pimp and drug trafficker. On January 7, 1980, Williams was found dead in his Laurel Canyon home with a gunshot wound to his head and his blood splattered all over his garage walls. Though ruled a suicide, no one who was familiar with Larry's violent lifestyle was much convinced of that. In a bizarre turn of events, another blues singer named Martin Albritton appropriated his name before Williams' body was even cold. He continues to this day to claim that he is the real Larry Williams and even tours and performs under the name Big Larry Williams. The next name on the list is Brian Cole, bass player for the Association, a Laurel Canyon folk rock band known for the hit songs Along Comes Mary and Never My Love. The Association was formed by Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander. Kirkman had formerly played in a band with Frank Zappa, while Alexander was fresh from a stint in the U.S. Navy. Jerry Yester, a guitarist and keyboardist for the band, was formerly with the Modern Folk Quartet, a band managed by Zappa manager Herb Cohen and produced by Birds manager Jim Dixon. Guitarist Larry Ramos had formerly been with the New Christie Minstrels, which also produced Gene Clark of the Birds. On June 16, 1967, Cole and his band were the first to take the stage at the Monterey Pop Festival, followed by such Laurel Canyon stalwarts as The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and The Mamas and the Papas. Five years later, on August 2, 1972, Cole was found dead in his Los Angeles home. The cause of death was reportedly a heroin overdose. Cole was one month shy of his 30th birthday at the time of his death. Another new name on the Laurel Canyon death list is Lowell George, the founder and creative force behind the critically acclaimed but largely obscure band known as Little Feet. George was the son of Willard H. George, a famous furrier to the Hollywood movie studios. Lowell's first foray into the music world was with a band known as The Factory, which cut some demos with a guy by the name of Frank Zappa. The factory evolved into the fraternity of man, though without George, who had left to serve as lead vocalist for the Standells. George returned, however, to join the band in the studio for the recording of their second album. By that time, as we have already learned, the fraternity of man had taken up residence in the log cabin, alongside Carl Franzoni and his fellow freaks. George next joined up with Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, though his tenure there was destined to be a short one. Like so many others, Lowell left embittered by Zappa's dictatorial approach to making music and his condescending treatment of his bandmates. After parting company with Zappa, George formed Little Feet, a band composed mostly of musicians from the Fraternity of Man sessions. Lowell, who 
is credited with being a pioneer of the use of slide guitar in rock music, served as singer, songwriter, and lead guitarist for the band, which released its debut album in 1970. Though well regarded within the industry and by critics, the band's albums failed to sell, and George ultimately announced the demise of the band and recorded a solo album. After playing a show on June 29, 1979, at George Washington University in support of that album, George was found dead in an Arlington, Virginia hotel room very near the Pentagon. Cause of death was said to be a massive heart attack, though George was just 34 years old at the time. According to Barney Hoskins, writing in Hotel California, a regular social stop-off for George was a Laurel Canyon house on Wonderland Avenue belonging to three-dog night singer Danny Hutton. A drop-in den of debauchery, the Hutton house featured a bedroom with black walls and a giant fireplace. Lowell would often swing by and entertain the likes of Brian Wilson or Harry Nilsson. Nilsson and his regular drinking buddy John Lennon were frequent guests at this den of debauchery. Former Beatle John Lennon is, to be sure, one of the most famous names to be found on the Laurel Canyon death list. Lennon also has the distinction of being one of the few Laurel Canyon alumni whose cause of death is acknowledged to have been homicide. The ex-Beatle, of course, never lived in the canyon, but he was a fixture on the Sunset Strip and at various Laurel Canyon hangouts, frequently in the company of Harry Nilsson. Lennon was, as is fairly well known, murdered on December 8, 1980, in front of New York's Dakota Apartments, which had been portrayed by filmmaker Roman Polanski in his film Rosemary's Baby as a den of satanic cult activity. Not long before Lennon's murder, assassin Mark David Chapman had approached a cult filmmaker Kenneth Anger and offered him a gift of live bullets. Just days after Lennon was felled, Anger's long-delayed final cut of Lucifer Rising made its New York debut very near the blood-stained grounds of the Dakota Apartments. Precisely three weeks after Lennon's death, Tim Hardin, Canyonite folk musician, close associate of Frank Zappa, one-time tenant in Lenny Bruce's Laurel Canyon adjacent home, and former United States Marine, died of a reported heroin and morphine overdose in Los Angeles. At the time of his death, on December 29, 1980, Hardin was just 39 years old, one year younger than Lennon. Eight years later, on July 18, 1988, Singer, songwriter, keyboardist Krista Pafkin, better known as Nico, died of a reported cerebral hemorrhage in Ibiza, Spain, under unusual circumstances. After achieving some level of fame as a vocalist with the Velvet Underground, Nico had left the Warhol stable and migrated west to Laurel Canyon, where she formed a bond with a then-unknown singer-songwriter named Jackson Brown, who contributed a few songs to Nico's 1967 debut album, Chelsea Girl. The title was derived from New York's Chelsea Hotel, where Devin Wilson took a dive, and where the persona of John Train murdered the persona of Phil Oakes. Chapter 11. Detours. 
Rustic Canyon, and Greystone Park. By the time Manson shifted base from Rustic Canyon to an old ranch in Chatsworth, he began formulating the notion that he and his followers had to prepare themselves for a race war with black America. Barney Hoskins, writing in Hotel California. We must now temporarily relocate to Rustic Canyon, which lies about nine miles west of Laurel Canyon in the Hollywood Hills. It was there, in Lower Rustic Canyon, that beach boy Dennis Wilson lived in the late 1960s in what Steve Gaines described in Heroes and Villains as a palatial log cabin-style house at 14400 Sunset Boulevard that had once belonged to humorist Will Rogers. The expanse of home set on three lushly landscaped acres. In the summer of 1968, as is fairly well known, Charlie Manson and various members of his entourage moved in with Wilson. Considerably less well known is that Charles Tex Watson, for reasons that have never really been explained, was already living there. As many as two dozen members of Manson's clan spent the entire summer there, with Wilson picking up the tab for all expenses. The Mansonites, mostly nubile young women, regularly drove Wilson's expensive cars and demolished at least one of them. Dennis didn't seem to mind. He was busy recording Manson in Brother Brian's home studio and inviting fellow musicians like Neil Young over to the house to hear Charlie perform. Young was so impressed that he urged Mo Austin to sign him. Dennis would later claim that he had destroyed all the Manson demo tapes, that he remembered almost nothing of his time with Charlie and the family, and that he certainly knew nothing about the Tate and LaBianca murders, which were committed in the summer of 1969, about a year after the family had vacated the Rustic Canyon residence. At some point in time, though, Wilson had a change of heart, and decided that maybe he did indeed know a little something about the murders. I know why Charles Manson did what he did, said Dennis. Someday I'll tell the world. I'll write a book and explain why he did it. That book, however, was never written, and Wilson's story, if indeed he had one, was never told. Instead, Dennis Wilson drowned under questionable circumstances on December 28, 1983, in the marina where his beloved yacht had previously been docked. But this story isn't really about Dennis Wilson. It's about Charlie Manson and his alleged motive for allegedly ordering the Tate and LaBianca murders. According to the helter-skelter scenario popularized by lead prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, who later penned a wildly disinformational book on the JFK assassination, Manson was hoping to spark an apocalyptic race war. It is said that Charlie believed that America's black population would prevail over whitey, but that, having won the war, the victors would be incapable of governing themselves. But that, alas, is when Charlie and his retinue would emerge from the shadows to take command. According to Barney Hoskins, Manson began formulating his race war theory during his stay in Rustic Canyon. If true, then Charlie appears to have been following in the footsteps of a long-forgotten former Rustic Canyon guru, one who preceded him by a few decades, and who, like Manson, 
had a certain fondness for swastikas. Just to the north of Dennis Wilson's former home is a vast wilderness of undeveloped canyon lands. Lower Rustic Canyon soon gives way to Upper Rustic Canyon, and all signs of human civilization abruptly vanish. The land remains wild and undeveloped, save for an old unpaved fire road that winds along the summit between Rustic Canyon and a neighboring canyon. The road is closed to the public, and vehicle traffic is non-existent. Aside from an occasional hiker wandering in from nearby Will Rogers State Park, there is nary a human to be seen. The farther in one hikes, the more wild and untamed it becomes. Along with the sights of the city, the sounds and the scents quickly disappear as well. Within a very short time, it is surprisingly easy to forget that one is still within the confines of the city of Los Angeles, and in its fall splendor, the canyon looks nothing like the Los Angeles that most Angelenos know and don't quite love. It is beautiful, serene, pastoral, and yet, filled with mist and heavily overgrown, it is also vaguely ominous. If one knows where to look, there is a narrow concrete stairway that is accessible from the fire road. That stairway descends down to the floor of the canyon, and it is a very, very long descent. 512 steps long, to be exact. As one makes the descent, this stairway, which seems to go on forever, seems wildly out of place. With time to kill on the way down, one may find oneself pondering how many man-hours it took to set forms for 512 poured concrete steps, and how truckloads of concrete were poured out here in the middle of nowhere. Reaching the canyon floor, one finds that, though the native flora has struggled mightily to reclaim the land, remnants of a past civilization can be seen everywhere. Some structures remain largely intact. A nearly 400,000-gallon spring-fed reservoir serving a sophisticated potable water system. A concrete-walled structure that once housed twin electrical generators capable of lighting a small town. More concrete stairways, hundreds of steps long, each snaking its way up the canyon walls. Weathered livestock stables professionally graded and paved roads, countless stone retaining walls, an incinerator, concrete foundations and skeletal remains of former dwellings, the rusting carcass of a Manson-esque VW bus, and at the former entrance, an imposing set of electronically controlled wrought iron security gates. It is the kind of place that seems tailor-made for Charlie and his family, remote and secluded, yet accessible by the family's custom-built dune buggies, with just enough crumbling infrastructure to provide rudimentary shelter for the clan, and with elaborate security provisions, including sentry positions and a formerly electrified fence completely encircling the 50-acre compound, as well as, by some reports, an underground tunnel complex and it was located just a short hike up the canyon from the place that Charlie Manson called home in the summer of 1968. While exploring this place, obvious questions begin to come to mind. Who developed this remote portion of the canyon in what feels like the middle of nowhere? 
The goal appears to have been to create a hidden and completely self-sustaining community, and an extraordinary amount of money was invested in infrastructure development. But why? Very few Angelenos know of the curious ruins in Rustic Canyon, and fewer still know the history of those ruins. Every now and then, though, a local reporter will pay a visit and the story will make a one-time appearance in a local publication, briefly casting some light on a bit of the hidden history of Los Angeles. In May 1992, Mark Norman of the Los Angeles Business Journal was one such reporter. According to Norman, county records show Jesse Murphy, a widow, purchasing 50-plus acres north of Will Rogers' property in 1933. But the owners were actually named Stevens, Norman, an engineer with silver mining interests, and Winona, the daughter of an industrialist, and a woman given to things supernatural. Local lore has it that Winona fell under the spell of a certain unnamed gentleman. This trio, along with unnamed others, began a 10-year construction program costing $4 million, starting with a water tank holding 375,000 gallons and a concrete diesel-powered generator station with foot-thick walls, both of which are still visible. The hillsides were terraced for orchards, an electrified fence circled the boundaries, and a huge refrigerated locker was built into a hillside. The one thing Murphy Stevens couldn't seem to get right was their main house. The first architect hired was Welton Beckett, but there are also sketches by Lloyd Wright, and in 1941, Paul Williams drafted blueprints for a sprawling mansion with 22 bedrooms, a children's dining room, a gymnasium, pool, and a workshop in the basement. Thirteen years later, in September 2005, Cecilia Rasmussen of the Los Angeles Times added a few details to the story. Southern California has been the cradle to many odd cults, credos, utopias, and dystopias. Among the most mysterious are the ruins of a rustic canyon enclave, once known as Murphy Ranch. On rustic canyons secluded and woodsy floor stand the eerily burned-out and graffiti-scarred remains <coughs> of concrete and steel structures, underground tunnels, and stairways leading from the top of the canyon to the bottom. Behind the locked and rusted wrought-iron entrance gates and flagstone wall stand the traces of a small community that had the capacity to grow its own food, generate its own electricity, and dam its own water. The hillsides were terraced with 3,000 nut, citrus, fruit, and olive trees, and fitted with water pipes, sprinklers, and an elaborate greenhouse. A high barbed wire fence discouraged intruders. Research indicates that it could have been home to up to 40 local Nazis from about 1933 to 1945. Armed guards patrolled the canyon, dressed in the uniform worn by silver shirts, a paramilitary group modeled after Hitler's brown shirts. A man known through oral histories only as Herr Schmidt supposedly ruled the place and claimed to possess metaphysical powers. Herr Schmidt, needless to say, was the gentleman whose spell Winona Stevens fell under, 
According to Mark Norman, Schmidt convinced her that the coming world war would be won by Germany, that the United States would collapse into years of violent anarchy, and that the chosen few read the Stevenses, the certain gentlemen and other true believers, would need a tight spot in which to hole up, self-sufficient, until the firestorm had passed. They could then emerge not only intact, but thanks to the superiority of their politics, rulers of the anthill, and, not incidentally, the origin of its new population. Sound familiar? Murphy Ranch also reportedly featured a 20,000-gallon diesel fuel tank, livestock stables, and dairy and butchering facilities. Along both sides of the compound rise eight crumbling narrow stairways of at least 500 steps each, as the L.A. Times noted. Those stairways apparently led to sentry positions high on the canyon walls. For the record, they are not actually crumbling, though most are overgrown with impenetrable vegetation. During Murphy Ranch's years of operation, nearby residents reportedly claimed of late-night military exercises and the sounds of live gunfire echoing through the canyons. To summarize, then, it appears that the city of Los Angeles was home to a very secret, militarized Nazi compound that was in operation both before and during World War II. Remnants of that blacked-out chapter of L.A. history can be seen to this day, though few make the track. The purpose of the decaying compound was to ride out an anarchic, apocalyptic war, so that the chosen few could emerge as the rulers of the new world. It was all so very Manson-esque. And ironically enough, Manson and his crew spent an entire summer camped out at a home that was within a two-mile hike of this curious place. In the late 1940s, after the close of the war, Murphy Ranch was reportedly converted into an artist colony. Architect Welton Beckett, who designed several of the structures at the ranch, would go on to design two of L.A.'s landmark structures, the Capitol Records Building and the Music Center. In 1973, the property once known as Murphy Ranch was purchased by the city of Los Angeles. As far as is known, the city has no plans to reopen the facility. Van Cortland and Untermeyer functioned as outdoor meeting sites for the cult. Maury Terry, writing in The Ultimate Evil, in reference to the cult behind the Son of Sam murders. Nestled in between the mouths of Laurel and Coldwater Canyons lies a large estate known as Greystone Park, home of the long-vacant Greystone Mansion. The home and the grounds it sits on is said to be, to this day, the most expensive private residence ever built in the city of Los Angeles. Constructed in the 1920s, the home and grounds carried the then-unfathomable price tag of $4 million. By way of comparison, the Lookout Inn, built a decade and a half earlier, was projected to cost from $86,000 to $100,000. In other words, the single-family residence cost at least 40 times what the lavish 70-room inn cost. 
and the in required bringing infrastructure and building materials to a remote mountaintop. The massive 46,000 square foot edifice sits amid 22 lavishly landscaped acres of prime Hollywood Hills real estate. This rather ostentatious home was built by uber-wealthy oil tycoon Edward L. Doheny as a wedding present for his son, Edward Ned Doheny Jr. If that plot line sounds vaguely familiar, it is probably because Edward Doheny was the inspiration for Upton Sinclair's oil, and thus for the homicidal Daniel Plainview character in There Will Be Blood, some of the interior shots near the end of that film of expansive marble-floored rooms appear to have been shot in the real Greystone. Upon the home's completion in September 1928, young Ned Doheny and his new bride moved into the humble abode. Within months, the home would be bloodstained. Soon after, it would be permanently abandoned. Poor Ned, you see was found dead in the cavernous home on February 16, 1929. Near him lay the lifeless body of his assistant, personal secretary, Hugh Plunkett. Both men had been shot. Despite an inordinately long delay in reporting the deaths and an admission that the bodies had been moved prior to the arrival of police, were called only after the family doctor and numerous relatives, all of whom arrived at the home before the LAPD, no formal inquest was ever conducted, and the case was written off in less than 48 hours as a murder-suicide arising from a gay lover's quarrel. Despite an unlikely lack of fingerprints on the gun, Plunkett was said to be the trigger man, and the media quickly went into a frenzy playing up the scandalous homosexuality angle and portraying young Plunkett as positively demented. It is anyone's guess whether or not the two really were gay lovers, but it matters little. The rest of the story was almost certainly a work of fiction. In reality, both men were likely murdered as part of the massive cover-up damage control operation that followed the disclosure of the Harding-era Teapot Dome scandal, which the Doheny family, as it turns out, was very deeply immersed in. Both Ned Doheny and Plunkett had been scheduled to testify before a Senate investigating committee, as was Doheny's father, one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. Due to manufactured public sympathy for the grieving father, however, the congressional investigation was shelved. News reports of the tragedy contained no mention of the victim's deep involvement in the scandal, and the tired murder-suicide scenario was trotted out because, as is seen so often in more modern times, if the alleged perpetrator is already dead, it pretty much eliminates the need for things like an investigation and trial. Some 40 years after those gunshots rang out in the opulent Greystone Mansion, a new Ned Doheny, scion of the very same Doheny oil clan, joined the ranks of the Laurel Canyon Singer-Songwriters Club. Like fellow Canyonites Terry Melcher and Graham Parsons, Doheny was viewed by many as a pampered trust fund kid. His closest circle of friends included country rockers Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, and Glenn Fry. In addition to recording his own solo albums, his self-titled debut was released in 1973. 
Doheny contributed to albums by such Laurel Canyon superstars as Fry, Brown, Don Henley, Linda Ronstadt, and Graham Nash. Strangely enough, New York City once had a large estate known as Greystone as well. That Greystone was donated to the city as parkland, and it therefore became known as Untermeyer Park 